This is the Gorilla Social Work Podcast, your crackerjack clinical insurgents pitting evidence against anecdotes. Greetings, Gorilla Social Workers. We're thrilled to bring you another chit-chat with your hosts, the Song of Ice and Fire, Jeff Moore, and yours faithfully, Mace Warren. Jeff and I are both forensic psychotherapists that specialize in treating clients involved in the criminal justice system. We love sharing our misguided musings with all of you, and we thank you so much for your ongoing listenership. Today, we bring you another installment of our GSW News Series, where Jeff and I each bring provocative news articles to the table to discuss and share our thoughts. If you like what you hear, ask the five-star rating to help you practice a new method for the Heimlich maneuver. But when he ducks his head forward, wrap your arm around his neck, grab your choking arm with the other hand, push your hips forward, and pull up on the five-star rating's head until he nods off. And now, on with the show. We're on hot mic. Dude, what's there's always something wrong with your mic, I swear. Yeah. And it's always your fault, too. <laughs> oh, this one's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, stage crew, stage yeah. crew. Boo. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Booing. Oh, that's the best. Repping the three o'clock high. Oh, yeah. Buddy, you, <laughs> see, you saw that, huh? Buddy Ravel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I was, I was, I've been on a kick with getting just like. 80 shirts when somebody recognizes it though i feel like soup well i don't know if i feel super cool i kind of feel like let down almost like uh so i have this one that says cohagen air mm. do you know where that's from no total recall oh so the bad guy in it his name is cohagen and he's like they're on mars you know that movie holds up by the way you Does, should, i haven't seen it oh dude in yeah a long time. i mean there's there's a few that are garbage you know but i i was uh <laughs> I was watching. There's a few that are hold up pretty good. Um, and Total Recall is one of them. But they're on they're on Mars, and mm-hmm. like, of course, it's like a you know artificial atmosphere that they're all living in or whatever. And this guy, the Cohagen guy, he keeps air from these people, and you know they die. Cohagen so, air. So Cohagen yeah. air. And I was walking around Disneyland with that thing on, and of course nobody knows. That. And then <laughs> this dude who's a cast member at at you know at Disneyland because that's what they call their janitors too is, is cast members you know <laughs> he's like he points at it you know he's he's one of the the dudes that directs people in in uh the Star Wars land where to go oh, you know yeah. and he's all total recall you know and he's <laughs> bald and clearly overweight and I'm just like yeah sweet bro gave him knocks I'm like god I'm a nerd dude well, like- <laughs> It's like I felt bad about myself yeah, yeah. for liking it's that like show. It's like an indictment on you because someone else recognizes a movie. Yeah, but I'm like waiting. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for it to happen at the same time. I'm like, yeah, somebody better recognize this. Well, uh, Buddy Revelle, that that's really obscure. It, like, I don't know how many people would know that unless you went to Auden High. Yeah. Th- how I, many people know that movie? I don't know how 
Yeah. What how are, well known is Three O'clock High to us? It's well known because. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. Cool. I don't know how well known Three O'clock High is, and I've only ever seen that guy in one other movie. He was the bad guy in Kindergarten Cop. Was he? Buddy Ravel, bro. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you didn't. You didn't uh, know I that. Think, I don't think I connected it. <laughs> well, what 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 was the Melissa Joan Hart movie when we were there? Closer. Drive me crazy. Drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. She was. Uh, um, was three o'clock high bigger uh, than Drive Me Crazy? I think so. I think so. Because um, Drive Me Crazy was that was like nothing. I mean, that was, yeah. you know, and, and three o'clock, I don't know. Well, I've never heard anybody talk about it. So it came out in 1987. So why would we have heard anybody talk about it? We were five. Right. You know what I mean? Fair enough. So that's, I don't know. I, but I mean, I love that movie. There's some really cool parts in that movie. Dude, dude they, they paid me 50 bucks to use my locker. Oh yeah. 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 In uh, drive <laughs> I, me crazy. Yeah. I had to clear out my locker for a couple of days. I remember 50 bones for a 17 year old. I got paid extra money for being an extra and drive me crazy. And I sat one thing about Melissa Joan Hart, shout out to Melissa Joan Hart. Um, uh, we were playing a twist, me and Ed, we were playing twisted metal on, this is PS one Yeah, <laughs> back in the day. And, uh, she sat down and she had like a little mini speaker. I was and she was playing uh, Nine Inch Nails. I was like, "Oh, hey, all right, you got some taste, girl." <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, she was like watching us play Twisted Metal, and she's like, yeah, she's "Oh, like, really? Yeah, it was, was kind of funny. We we're like all intimidated. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I hope she sees how good I play this game. <laughs> yeah, you think she, <laughs> she likes she me? She liked me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so hilarious. Yeah. yeah anytime we watch that, it's funny because there's a. There's a a particular basketball player that Ed, it's like his arch nemesis, and Ed's last year uh, that they were playing the their championship game, they lost by the way. Um, the the player just made some really boneheaded moves, and to this day, if I just say his name, dude, Ed, <laughs> it comes unglued. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he instantly loses his mind. Uh. But yeah, I have I have one I have one that I was I can have not had anybody know what it was. So it's a um, it says Utah, get me two. And there's, do you know where that's from? No. So it's from Point Break. The yeah, the oh, best I Patrick Swayze movie that. of yeah. all time. Yeah. And uh, there's a funny part in there where Gary Busey, crazy crazy ass, is explaining to Johnny Utah about these subway sandwiches or something, these meatball sandwiches. And he's like, get me two. And then he gets out of his car. He's like, Utah, get me two. Mm. First person recognizes that will be a nerd bomber. I was going to say, uh, that'd be, that's very obscure. Yeah, dude, you know you know what? Speaking of like, they remade Point Break. Awful. Should have never done that. That was a horrible Same decision. Total recall. But you know what they're, oh, I know. Awful. And RoboCop. <laughs> dude, <laughs> go, when you get done with this, and anybody listening to this, uh, Look, just Google or watch, watch on YouTube. Look up the the RoboCop uh, shooting scene, like where he gets the new shot. one. No, 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 no. Oh. The the old one. The guy when the, he gets wasted at first. The yeah, first of it, dude. He, <laughs> he gets shot seven thousand times, and he's and he's like ah, <laughs> like he's like reacting to the bullets, like three thousand bullets but, deep. Yeah, but yeah. dude, he's like yeah. all kinds of things, and then finally they shoot him in the head, and you know, I was like good. <laughs> It's <laughs> just 80s movies were so cool, dude. Yeah. They were they were the best. Unintentionally cheesy, but in hindsight, that the nostalgia of the, just the how awful some of the action scenes yeah. were. Is, I don't yeah, know, I like it. But dude, I'm looking forward to the new one. So they're they're you know what movie they're remaking? Roadhouse. Beautiful. And you know who's so get so 
the Patrick Swayze character is probably not be, having him come back to do it, are they? <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> so he's uh, too he's, soon. No. He's pl- no, he's played by uh, <laughs> yeah. he's played by Jake Gyllenhaal, oh. and then you know that Sam Elliott, the guy who has, yeah, the mustache dude, yeah, who's been old in every movie he's ever been in. Yeah, you know? like even, even when, in that movie when yeah. he was young, he was old. Yeah, uh, Conor McGregor. What? Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. dude. Yeah, that's gonna be huh. pretty sweet. Yeah. Wonder if Connor can act. Guess we'll see. Oh, breaking news on that uh, on that movie front, huh? Which is good segue into our topic for today. Mm. We got some news articles. So that's right. Uh, social work. There news. you go. GSW news. We should pat. Da 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 Yeah, that's that's what it is. That yeah, we need that news sound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dude. So uh, so basically, in this in this uh, in these episodes. Jeff and I each pick a, uh, a news article that we find provocative or um, something that thought provoking, you know, whatever. Um, and we read it to you and then we discuss it and then we leave that for you guys to, to take a look at. So yeah. what do you got for us today, man? I have uh, Fox 13 investigates Utah allowed Ooh. 14 sex. A offenders. local, a yeah, local. local news. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a local. look here. All right. So, yeah, Utah allowed 14 sex offenders to live together despite its own rules. So, yeah, let me just take those first four paragraphs Mm -hmm. and we'll jump into it. Okay, cool. So Salt Lake City, a Fox 13 news investigation has revealed how the Utah Department of Corrections makes exceptions to its own rules, allowing clusters of sex offenders to live together throughout the state. Dan Blanchard, the director of APMP, said his office started receiving complaints in spring about a house on Catherine Street in Rose Park. APMP managed the sex offender registry and supervises most offenders after they leave prison. Neighbors said they decided to stay away from the cute house with, the pink, with the pink butterfly once they learned there were 14 sex offenders registered to the address a single family residence. I make sure that, that my windows and doors are locked every single night, said a neighbor. If your child were walking home from school in front of that house, how would that make you feel? Probably pretty angry. Let me let me see here. I want to see if they if we got a shot of this. The this, cute house with the butterfly? Yeah, this picture. Oh, come on. Danny, you're okay. Do I really have to I just want to see a picture. Do I have to? You got to watch. Okay. Okay. Let's just watch this. Five more seconds of an ad. Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Okay. I got it. Utah's weather authority. Uh, No, no, no. Go back to the beginning. I don't think we're going to get it. I'll scrub, 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 scrub. I guess there's the house. Blowing up those dudes spot on the registry. Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Okay. There's the pink butterfly right there Uh, cute house (laughs) i can't describe a house as cute but all right that looks like a house for sure okay anyway i just wanted to see what a cute house looks like yeah go go to the the scroll down the the person that commented i think kind of set the tone for the uh, The, uh, if your child were walking home from school in front of that house how would that make you feel probably pretty angry okay the the article goes on to talk about uh kind of the saturation rule and it, it it references something in there that I remember differently. Uh, so, well, can you? Uh, so, for listeners who don't know, who might be in, um, and this is a, who might be in another state or even another uh, country, um, the saturation rule. Can you explain that a little bit? What that is? Yeah. Well, so let's see. How do I? How do we start? the The idea is that you don't want too many felons 
living in the same place, the idea being that an increased number of felons living in the same residence increases risk, you know, and this would probably be best understood with like a dope house. You know, if you have four guys that are, have been historically in trouble for drug use and you know, they've, they've, they're setting up shop together. I think the, the idea is that they're going to be at increased risk to get back into their old ways. If you know, these highly criminal dudes are, are living together. And so it's that, that old, what is it? Proverb or idiom birds of a feather probably do a lot of, crack yeah birds of a feather do a lot of crack <laughs> yeah but I think that's how it goes and just to clarify is it a saturation like it's it's not a law is it that they can't live there well, or is this a, a rule that's kind of created by apmp I, as- don't, I don't know it's not a law um and I, I, that, that's the thing is that the news article somewhere in here maybe we can read through it it, it, it references the felon to felon contact thing as being a rule and i mm. i don't think that that's a rule anymore but the saturation thing APMP can decide whether they enforce it or not. Okay. It's the same thing. So, okay, my understanding of it is that the, the idea is that no more than three people are supposed to live in a house uh, that you know that have a have a felony charge. And I mean, fourteen dudes living in a house—that's uh, that's like a different set of problems, but. This this does technically violate I, the saturation rule. I know. It, well, number one, 14, just the sheer number. Like when you, say, yeah. when you say cute, I mean, what about just 14 non-felons living in a house? Like that would be. I lived at, when I was in college, I lived in a house with, with five other guys and it was horrific. Yeah, I lived in I lived in a house with, yeah, five other guys. So yeah. there were six of us and we were in a four bedroom place. And it was awful. Yeah. It, was, it was the worst setup on all, of all time. Maybe so 14. 14. Yeah. I mean, it, and that did not look like a 14 person house. It it must be like a a duplex. I, I don't know. Because like zoning. It, like a quadruplex. Like, yeah. A quadruplex. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. But so this this article makes reference to the the saturation rule. And okay. then, then, then it says the APMP can violate its own rule. And then it also mentions that... Uh, it says with a little more authority, the APMP limits uh, felons from from being able to associate with one another. Mm-hmm. And I, <clears throat> I thought that got lifted. Yeah, I uh, I was I was always under the impression that this that was well years a years ago. <laughs> years ago. Yeah, <laughs> you were messing with my noise here. Right. Yeah, years ago. Um, that. APMP, they, it used to be that you had to request permission for your, like uh, us, we have clients that naturally just develop a friendship while they're in group and they want to be able to hang out. And we used to have to ask for permission. Right. But I remember explicitly that it was two or three years ago, at least that they said, no, they no longer have to get permission from us to do okay. this. I'm so not going crazy. That's no, what, that was I, my memory. Right. Too. Right. So, and and I rarely had the, um, I rarely had the time that that was turned down either. You know, I mean, there, um, I don't get me wrong. I I think the uh the spirit of it sounds okay. I mean, we know that the spirit of the saturation rule. Yeah, I mean, so um, or felon to felon contact, both. Both, <laughs> yeah. because I mean, so so 
anybody who does work with uh, you know people that are involved in the criminal justice system who do any form of risk assessment know that those people that you choose to hang around with, you know, what they usually call criminal associates, um, increase the likelihood of recidivism. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're spending time with people who are reinforcing antisocial attitudes or attitudes that are, you know, support and condone criminal behavior of any kind, sex mm-hmm. offenses included, um, then that's an increase. Now, I, I don't know. I'm, I suppose there's a counter argument to that, which, you know, I, I assume we'll get to, but um, that that's, I, I guess, the spirit of the rule, right? That's, that's where it's coming from. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I think, I don't know, it's, that's definitely the case with uh, some types of crimes, you know, probably a lot of crimes mm-hmm. that, you know, when they're associating the, the likelihood of antisocial behaviors goes up and sex offending. I don't know. It's, it's uh, in most cases, it's kind of a solo project, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the best way to describe it, but it's like a, it, you know, that of course things happen, you know, you hear about, you know, gang rapes or, you know, sexual assault happening with more than one person, but that that's super rare. At least, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers on it, but I think that I've come across it maybe two or three times in my career. There was a kid at the group home that we worked with that was involved in that. Yeah. Uh, so in, in other words, this wasn't something that like, uh, manifested as a result of like antisocial pressure, like peer pressures from people who were, you were, you were seeing other people doing this, you know, like drugs is an easy way to look at it, right? Drugs is always the easiest reference point. So, um, I see my friends using drugs and, you know, I, I don't want to be left out and they don't want to hang out with people. So I just kind of gravitate towards this. And as a result of getting into this drugs, how deep I choose to get into this, there's just natural criminal behaviors that have to start stemming from this. Um, substance use is its own set of risk factors. But if I'm it, with people who, you know, have a like, I don't know, F the police attitude and and just kind of against pro-social conventional thinking, um, I'm more likely to kind of adopt those norms, right? Right. Um, whereas you're saying that that sex offending usually doesn't have people that are reinforcing those those thoughts and those feelings. You don't have a whole group of people saying, yeah, that's cool to, to do these yeah, type of activities. Quite the opposite, right? I mean, I guess the only exception that I would have to that I would see is on um, – a lot of child pornography cases, um, mm. but it's, it's distance. There's a buffer because you're using a, you know, a, a computer. Because, what have you, what have you seen? Well, a lot of, um, you know, federal assessments that I do, most of the federal guys, because they're, um, they get charged with child pornography because these, these images or videos are sometimes international, either on peer to peer networks or, um, you know, through like a BitTorrent account yeah. or, or they're doing on message boards, like they'll they'll weird ways they'll they'll have a picture of just an innocuous picture of something completely opposite of this, and within that picture, they'll pick a little area in there and attach uh, a video to it that you can't even see it, but there's like a link embedded into the picture, and they'll tell you where to find the link and click on it, like a clandestine I have way. Not heard of this. Yeah, clandestine way of getting those through. So this kind of requires a network of people to pull this off. A lot of the times, like you, I mean, I, <laughs> I would assume you're in for a big surprise if you just go on Google and search child porn. Like, I don't think you're going to get where you want to go, and you'll probably just get in trouble mm-hmm. anyway, like really fast for just 
you know, searching those things. So there's kind of an underground network that relies on people, um, a lot of whom are are police officers, you know, uh, doing undercover work, trying to catch guys too. So, um, but that that's kind of the only situation where I know that there's a lot of linkage. But they don't know each other though. It's not it's not similar to like we're pals. And but, but you see, like reinforcing, like like justifying what they're looking at, and maybe trying to through talking it up and and like saying it's not so bad, or that you know professing their attraction to things and kind of having like a almost like a deviant support group. Yeah, yeah, like they'll um, so like there's a really um, there's a really uh, I guess popular site that that you know it's called kick i'm sure you've heard of it um and people will go on there and you know essentially it's it's people with i guess what you could call out of the norm uh, you know thoughts about sex and sexuality it's not inherently deviant in terms of like non-consensual activities or or children or or anything illegal that's not what kick is is all about however in on there they tend to meet one another and um it's it's a good place to kind of screen out and find people. And they use like phrases, like little secret codes and stuff to, um, to you know, I guess, locate one another. And then they get sure. a direct message going on. And then it's a bit of a commodity. So, you know, if um, I'll give you this, if you give me that. So they trade a lot of that. Right. But definitely reinforcing. I mean, like Nambla is a great example. Yeah. You know, that's that's reinforcing very deviant, you know, sexual thinking. Right. Although the one thing, the other thing I'd say that might be an exception sometimes with sex offenders in particular is not all of them, but uh, I don't know. And I don't I don't know the statistics on this, but um, at least anecdotally, I would say most of our clients in terms of like criminogenic risk, you know, like a huge criminal history, criminal thinking, all those things, they're kind of low risk. They're not really good criminals per se. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just don't. And um, now, and, and you right. could make an argument to say a lot of their criminal thinking came from their period of incarceration. I'm not saying don't incarcerate them. I'm just saying that when you go to prison, you have to adopt prison thinking to get by, you know, and that's a lot of criminal thinking, unfortunately. And then you come back into the community. But I, I think most of them kind of have a low risk profile when it comes to just straight criminogenic risk. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So that's where I don't know how much, how well that, that rule applies. Right. And, and maybe that brings up why that, so this article, I mean, I, I, kind of skimmed through it, but it looked the, the journalist appears to be kind of making the point that APMP is maybe being inconsistent on the way that it decides what rules they do or don't enforce. And the, the, like the way I'm looking at it is that's how it should be. The, the things, things sh that there shouldn't necessarily be just stark black, white decision-making things should be based on risk and variables and a multitude of factors in like there, I mean, 14 is a lot of people, but I mean, it depends on wh who are these 14 people? What, mm -hmm. what's their history? Uh, what's their mindset? Have they been through treatment? You know, I would want to know the circumstances too. Uh, yeah. And you know well, I mean? it references the housing crisis as being 
a well, big reason. Let's take a, let's take a look at this. Here. And look at like the Good Landlord Act funnels them into these neighborhoods. Yeah. So according to APMP, sex offenders on parole are not allowed to associate with other felons, which means they should not have 13 felon roommates unless they get permission from their that's what you were talking about. Yeah. Unless they get their parole agent for good behavior. In the in this case, APMP made 14 individual exceptions. Man, what way to put APMP on blast. They they kind of did throughout the article. These are reviewed by agents, maybe multiple agents reviewing them, Blanchard said. We trust that our field team, they're managing those appropriately. Fox 13 News asked how often APMP is making exceptions on its own rules. It's a case-by-case, and there are times when we decline those requests, Blanchard responded. There's not necessarily a box that's checked uh, that says this one is denied or this one is approved. But as a supervisor, you have no way of knowing whether your agents are approving these in 90% of cases, 10% of cases, as Fox 13 News investigator reporter Adam Herberts. I mean, Herberts? May, maybe it would be good if there was like a way to track what is or isn't happening, you know, because I, I don't think the APMP is doing that. But it, what what they're doing there is they're, they're allowing some discretion of the mm-hmm. field agents that, know their the the offender best yeah and well would you want that though i yes yeah uh, the 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 news article is kind of saying like which one is it and you know at least that's sort of the way i took it like yeah. you know making rules convenient and, and look I, I get it i mean that's a lot of people with a felony person crime living in the same house i mean it is it is weird like but uh I'm reading C.Y. Roby's quote here. It says, according to Dr. C.Y. Roby, the psychologist who helped develop Utah's sex offender rehabilitation program, the idea of them living together is frowned upon, but he understands the housing crisis makes things difficult. And I, I, I think that that is worth noting in that, I mean, finding housing is tough for anybody. And then, well, wouldn't you agree that they were like that? That's even more difficult for that's what i'm saying well so yeah it's it's harder for sex offenders and there's the good landlord act and all these different things that funnel them mm-hmm. into very specific locations they, they can only live so many places right i mean it to me it seems like sex offenders were in a housing crisis before there was a housing crisis yeah because um and the good landlord act which i th- I, I think no longer is in place or at least Oh, really? Yeah, I think that that's gone away. It was a weird, um, hmm. and I think that was only related to Weber County, too. And oh, okay. Yeah, and ba- Weber Morgan County. And basically what it was was um, you as a landlord would get some sort of, I think it was a tax incentive, and I could be wrong, so I apologize if I am, but you got some sort of tax incentive tax break if you did not rent to felons, right? Now, the problem with that is is, is that limited, um, you know, where clients could live. And, and you know this, basically it relegated to them to like slumlords, right? Yeah. And um, they would, and you would think it'd be cheaper for them, which was not true. So these, you know, slumlords recognized also, well, what, what, what are your options? Where are you going to go? Right. So they would charge high-end rates, you know, for them. And, and our clients would be like, Holy cow! What am I supposed to do? And and those type of barriers, um, you know, and and again, you know, I, I recognize it when people say they deserve that. Okay, I'm not, you know, you got to have an opinion on this. However, um, they're back in the community, and uh, 
you know, were this period of time that they are in the community before they violate and go back to prison, um, you know, the more difficult that we make it, the more likely they're going to revert back to previous coping methods. And those are the type of coping methods that right. led to their offense in the first place, which right. we are trying to avoid. So they're already in the community, and I'm not saying you have to bake them cookies. And This isn't us feeling bad for them necessarily. Right. It's saying as a community, we need to understand <clears throat> that these people are going to be living somewhere, and they're being funneled into these very specific geographical neighborhoods. And if not, you know, if if the saturation rule is strictly enforced, then the shelter is the other option. Do we want these guys without housing at all? That that does that make you the community member feel better to think that they don't have a house and that they're there, there's no way to track them. That makes AP and P's job dip more difficult. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I mean, this is how I was thinking about it, and I guess um, you know, once upon a time there was a there was an area that I think you and I were looking at and we had an idea. This is a kind of a, a old hotel or it was, it was a motel, right. That was in, um, that was in downtown Ogden. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, and what essentially it was turning out to be was we were, um, you know, we, so there was a number of rooms and we would just say this, you would come there and you would live there. And then we'd also provide your treatment in some of those offices. So it was kind of a one-stop shop for right. the clients. Right. That's what I thought. Of. Um, and, and I think the reason why we didn't move forward on that was because of the potential for this rule to get in the way. I mean, essentially you're, you're all sitting in different housing units. Um, and you're in kind of like a treatment center, you know, kind of that you pay rent, like a sober living type thing. But then that would have been two per room. I mean, you would have had damn near what, like 40 in, in the same area. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. So it'd be so, easier to track them, wouldn't it? Well, okay. So, well, then it would, it would, it'd be, and, and I'd say ones who were, it, you, I guess you'd have to be under the assumption that everybody in that building is is plotting and scheming right and and it's just like a you know a cauldron of, of you know kind of <laughs> trying yeah, getting together <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. you would have to assume that for that because and my thought goes to i would assume most of them are doing relatively well because if they weren't i mean the good news folks is that there's no more a higher level of supervision than on sex offenders in the community from adult probation and parole. And when there's even a whiff of, of impropriety, they get violated and they get sent back to prison. Um, so if you had all of them sitting there, I would imagine some of them are trying to do well and they would discourage that kind of crap from being there. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't want it there. They, that that's, I think really something that it's hard to sell to the public without them seeing it. But that's very true. Like, especially dudes that are pretty treatment savvy. Mm -hmm. They, they like things are right. It's a pretty tight ship. If, uh, for sex offenders that are on supervision and at least like during like group therapy and things like that, we see them call each other out all the time, yeah. hold each other accountable. And look like if, uh, and I mean, this is a anecdotal, but it seems like for whatever reason, 
uh, out of all the people of different crimes, sex offenders tend to roll over on each other a little more frequently. Yeah. You know, I kind of think that's everybody. Like, I know there's a con code that I would never, ever snitch on my fellow criminal. You think it's just like kind of a. Well, there's a there's a second piece to that. I would never, ever snitch on my fellow criminal. Until the moment it benefited me even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> That's the part they don't say out loud. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and and my thing is, is I, I just would say, think about a sober living house and how many people could be in there, you know, and why would that be? I mean, I get it. I mean, the, you know, the, the when people recidivate on substance use, it's kind of like, eh business as usual you know it's not really frowned upon it's not front page news well and it's also not as catastrophic either right well, I mean, yeah well, yeah not even okay. in the same ballpark however i'm just saying that that you know that there, there's not the same concerns there and right. and i would say more so like you you're saying that's very you know substance use especially when you get to that point it, it's very very social there's a very there's a social connectivity there that drives that pretty big and you're okay with that whereas you know, a lot of sex offenses are kind of lone wolves, you know, they, they weren't yeah. reinforced by a whole lot of people around them. And in fact, they didn't really seek a whole lot of help to get this because out of fear that it would ostracize them from their family and, and whatnot. So, right. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, did they, th- this goes into a lot of stuff. Doesn't look like it they does. got into any conclusions, right? <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's kind of just more pointed out is that the end of the article right no nah, they get into like a lot of back and forth and saying neighbors and Na- neighbors are disappointed to hear apmp's explanation for allowing so many exceptions like again we we want apmp to be able to have the ability to make decisions based on the evidence specific to the individual we want yeah. that we want them to have that that we want therapists to be able to have that like carte blanche one size fits all rules kind of take away from well i guess the integrity of what we're trying to do here we we need to make be able to make those determinations well and on here i know it was saying too they didn't like direct them to go stay there i mean it's it's more so that you have a limited option of of places to live and now it's even worse you know and and they got to be able to afford those things and be able to get like close to their jobs like they you know I personally don't think APMP makes flippant decisions like that. You no. know, like, oh, go live wherever you want. You know what I mean? I don't think they do that. No. Um, they, 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 when someone wants to move somewhere, they have to put in an uh, address verification request mm-hmm. and the, the agent has to look up the location, Google Maps, right? They need to check to see where it is in proximity to certain zoned areas that might not be sex offender friendly, you yeah. know, uh, depending on the client schools, parks, things like that. And then they have to do a, a, a walkthrough. They have to go visit the location and, and sign off on it. And so like it, it's, it, it isn't a flippant decision. Well, you know, and the other thing I was thinking was, okay, so if you're an agent, you have to make a field contact an unannounced field con- contact at their residence at least once a month. Right mm-hmm. now there's 14 of them there. Dude, APMP is there half the month. Think about that. That's a really good way of looking at it. Right? Yep. They're there half the month. They're there 15 days a month, you know? Assuming the PO doesn't just go in and just say, all right, got 80 of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, 
I, I guess you get whoever. Yeah, the increased supervision. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you would have more eyes on this. I mean, again, I just eyeballed that house. I don't know what the square footage is. 14 sounds a little bit much. On the other hand, though, um, you and I have been part of cases that have been reported in the news. And then I read the article and I'm like, man, that is wildly inaccurate. So, oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's tough because nobody like an agent can't get on here and in the comments section defend themselves. I know everybody else can just get on there and talk crap and say whatever they want. But um, as a provider or somebody that's tied to it, you can't get on and do anything about it. You can't fill in the context. And it's never updated. You know, nothing's ever updated and said, oh, this is inaccurate because it's like little things that really do change that. So I'm also like. Just I'm always skeptical about the accuracy of news articles because I've been part of them. I'm not, I'm not going to claim fake news. That's not what I'm saying. I just know that uh, news is is only worthy when it's provocative and and people want to read it. And if you kind of keep it watered down, then people don't want to read it. So I know they're doing a job, but whatever. So <laughs> want to shift gears? <clears throat> yeah. Geez, sorry about these coughs. I wish I had a cough button. <laughs> Dude, if you have a if you have a cough and it's that serious, you got to press a button. Yeah, yeah, you got a problem. It's so it's so yeah, weird. You need a button for that. So um, so yeah, mine's kind of it's not a two parter, but it was also sex offender related. But I wanted to open with this. Uh, this was some news from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. This kind of sets the stage for this. Um, and the article was words matter. And I, I didn't, by the way, post it here so we can view it because there's a gajillion pop-ups and it looks like crap and I'm not dealing with it. So it says words matter. Language can reduce mental health and addiction stigma. NIH leaders Mm. say national Institute of um, health. Um, so in a perspective published in neuropsychopharmacology, look at that word. Wow. Leaders from the National Institute of Health address how using appropriate language to describe mental illness and addiction can help reduce stigma and improve how people with these conditions are treated in healthcare settings and through society. This is an important line. The authors define stigma as negative attitudes toward people that are based on certain distinguishing characteristics. Negative attitudes toward people that are based on certain distinguishing characteristics. I want to come back to that. More than a decade of research has shown that stigma contributes significantly to negative health outcomes and can pose a barrier to seeking treatment for mental illness or or substance use disorders. Now, this is a perspective. This is not a, a research article. In other words, this is not like statistically proven at this point, right? Now, here's some stats on this. It says 35% of people with serious mental illness in the United States and nearly 90% of people with substance use disorders do not receive treatment. The perspective authors uh, point to the evidence that stigma-related bias among clinicians can contribute to a treatment-averse mindset and to flawed clinical care, including failure to implement proven methods of treatment. Not to beat a dead horse therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Some of our listeners didn't like our take. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I can't. (laughs) By the way, sidebar. Horses make good dog food. (laughs) If 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 equine therapy, you can't call it horse therapy. No, we'll call it horse. If you worked with a horse and it made you feel better. And you feel awesome. I'm so glad. I'm whatever works, man. Awesome. 100%. I will support you till, you know, all the live long day. I just want, I I think I asked, I wanted something simple. I wanted something. I want one randomized control trial. One. Okay. Not a meta-analysis. One randomized control trial. 
just one, showing a statistically significant outcome using equine therapy. Did you just give our listeners a homework assignment? There's your homework assignment. Okay. I I will I will post your your uh, contributions if you do that. But yeah, that was that was about. Our, our ineffectiveness as mental health practitioners had nothing to do with horses, but man, we got some blowback. So yes, please do horse therapy. By all means, more power to you. I'm no offense intended. Yeah, giddy by up. Any stretch. Yeah. Giddy up. Um, further, when a person with mental illness or substance use disorder continues to experience stigma, they may begin to internalize it. This self stigma can lead to lower self esteem and feelings of self worth and can become ongoing source of distress that may exacerbate symptoms and create barriers to successful treatment. Conversely, Efforts to reduce stigma may reduce the psychological burden it places on individuals and can be an important component of removing barriers to care. The authors highlight numerous studies showing that using scientifically accurate language and terms that uh, centralize the experience of the patients with mental illness and substance use disorders is one key component in reducing stigma. They argue that a shift in language is crucial for mobilizing resources toward mental health and addiction services and eroding prejudices that keep people who need those services from seeking or receiving them. Those stigma, those stigmas difficult to eliminate. They contend that changing the language we use to, to describe these conditions can make significant and immediate difference for mm. people experiencing them. So here's my thing. Uh, going back to that first thing there. So stigma, it's, it's, these are attitudes from people about characteristics about the people. It has nothing to do with the words, right? Like the words are the words. It's not like the word itself somehow gener like did a laser pointer into our head and somehow transmuted the attitudes into our heads just because it was a word. The word is just a word that we have attached negative attitudes about characteristics to. So, so you'd have to change the attitude, not the word, in order to change the stigma. Well, right. So right. they're they're suggesting changing um yeah, changing the language and to be more accurate. But I mean, even in here, going from, you know, the, there's language in there that they used to say addict and they, or addiction. They no longer use that. It's now substance use disorder, right? Um, they've, they've gone, and even now when they go from, you know, it, it's kind of fascinating they use the word mental illness, that term, because mental health disorder is what they... They kind of mental health sounds good. I want to have mental health. I like mental health, you know, but ment mental health disorder is what they've changed that to rather than mental illness. So I don't know. I, I think, though, that it is. It, so if you just change words, does that just kind of kick the can down the road? I mean, are you not just waiting for a new word to now become stigmatized because are we under the impression that if you just change a word, somehow attitudes shift along with it? I'm of two minds about this. The There's a reason that when I'm, when I'm working with a client one-on-one -on -one, that like to their face, when I'm talking to them, I don't call them a sex offender. You know, uh, I'll talk about their offense, but, I'll, I'll try to keep from saying like, you're a sex offender, you know, um, it does, it, it, it doesn't change any of the approach I have still hold them fully accountable, but 
I, I think when it comes to the way that the clients think about themselves, that there's some level of importance here. And here, here's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm pretty confident. I know the direction you're, you're going with this, but I'm, I, I kind of want to make the, the devil's advocate case here as, as far as how words matter mm-hmm. in terms of like treatment approach. So let's, let's go with the word sex offender. Yeah. The, in our field, I think that they're, so like kind of common language is rather than calling somebody a sex offender, you call them a person that is sexually offended. And the idea of course is, is that you're, you're acknowledging they're a person that engaged in a behavior and that they aren't the sum total of their parts that like they themselves aren't defined by the worst moment of their lives. And, and so for like clients, it can be maybe uh destigmatizing to drop that label. And here's the thing. I'm not fully on board with it. The, so the, what I tell clients is, you know, uh, a farmer farms, a banker banks, a baker bakes, a sex offender sexually offends. It's it, it describes like kind of a present tense in the moment. This is something I engage in. The mm-hmm. er makes it a thing that we do. And so I'll say you you have to, you know, you're a sex offender until you can show substantial evidence that you now live a life mutually exclusive to sexually offending, that you have changed demonstrably the way that you think and act such that if someone were to compare you at the time of your offense with the person sitting before me today, they'll be able to point to distinct differences that have held up over time. Once you've done that, then the like sex offender can become past tense and you're a person that once committed a sex offense. And so it's kind of like, I want clients to earn it in a way, not just adopt it to feel good about themselves. I want them to draw a distinction behaviorally measurably between who may maybe using risk level based on who they were, who they were then and how they act and how they are now. That's where I, that's where I'd push back on what you're saying. But if I'm understanding your point, you're saying that if like people have an attitude towards the word, towards people that commit a sex offense. So whether we call them sex offenders, people that have committed a sex offense, someone that once engaged in sexually abusive behaviors, but no longer engages in sexual abusive behaviors because now they're doing really good things. Like that, like, like, well, yeah. Why is there always more syllables? Oh, it's, dude. Yeah. Right. If you go the other direction, you're going to have more success with this. Make it really pithy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, you're saying that no matter what we change it to, there's going to be a stigma against that behavior. And so it's just going to be, there's going to be that the, the, the sti- like they're, they're not going to shed the stigma. It's just the words are going to be different. Yes. Right. Two, two things I think. About. Yes. Yes. You, uh, I mean, however, my counter to that is you kind of already alluded to it with Baker Farmer and so on and so forth. Okay, so would a soccer player ever want to be called a person who plays soccer? <laughs> I, I, I guess, maybe. Would, would they like, ever want that? I don't, or would, it, would, or it, would they want to be called a soccer player? Well, I don't know, man. Would like I, I guess we don't know soccer players. Yeah. 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 I mean, do does Lionel Messi identify himself as a soccer player or a retired soccer player or well i mean is he retired i don't know yeah (laughs) i don't watch soccer yeah um or or you know a football player i mean so a person who plays football like if somebody said hey oh hey he's a football player hey 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 a person who plays football is oj simpson a football player no now thank you for that segue by the way (laughs) 
Um, okay. <laughs> Have we ever, ever heard the the push to get distance ourselves from the stigma associated with murderer or serial killer? You ever heard a push to go in the other direction? No. Of course you haven't. There's value in stigma, okay? And and stigma has, in my opinion, I mean, if you are stigmatized and you don't like being that, that that's that's good motive. Nobody's ever going to say we shouldn't call them serial killers. We should call them persons <laughs> who have previously engaged in homicidal behaviors towards. Oh, you know, I mean, when you put it that way, it makes it so much more ridiculous. That's a good point. Well, yeah, we haven't. So what, I'm not a murderer. I'm someone that once murdered. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> yeah. I'm someone who is engaged in homicidal behavior. Yeah. You know, like like yeah. that is. <laughs> That's true. It, okay. So what I'm saying is, is like you, yes. I, number one is, okay. Um, when it comes to treatment of of sex, now look. When it comes to like substance use and sex offenders, the reason why I think there's a push there is because the, um, there's misunderstandings about this population that everybody needs to start you know coming to grips with. Okay, you know substance use disorder. I, I mean, it's a it's a neurobehavioral disorder. This is a disease, and you know, like it, it's pretty medically proven at this point. You know, and and yeah, I get it. They got them there. But a lot of people got themselves into diabetes too. We don't now no, not call that Great a disease. Point. Okay? Exactly. Great. A lot of people get themselves, themselves into like obesity heart disease or, too. Or cancer. Okay. We don't well, it's guess. called heart disease. Yeah. Right? Like we don't not call it something else just because of behaviors that led to it. Sure. I understand it, it's you don't like the behaviors that led to it. Neither do I. I don't necessarily agree with them. A lot of addicts don't like it either. Right. But they're at no. that level yeah. where the, the the thinking mechanism in their brain is not functioning at full clip, and they need some treatment for that. Okay, and it's a it's a neurobehavioral disorder, so it's a very there's a lot of sophisticated ways of treating that. It's not just a pill or going on a diet or anything like that. Willpower, right? There's there's a lot of behavioral stuff that goes into this. Okay, and I I think with sex offense, you know. Um, the landscape of sex offenders is changed and people are realizing, well, not all of them are pedophiles and, and looking to rape kids. And there's a lot of reasons that these sex offenses happen, not justifying them. I'm saying that the, the, uh, the events that led to this are very different for everybody. And the rehabilitation is very important too. all of us have a stake in this not happening again. And so those two get, you know, Rightly so, you know, some, some, I think it's like people are just asking for some grace for that population. However, I don't know if changing language helps that. Okay. It, it, because here's, here's an article that might support that. And because I think when you start changing language, it's so superficial that people are not dumb. They don't just be like, oh yeah, well, okay. You know, like <laughs> kind of talking about maps too. What do you mean? Minor attractive people. Yeah. 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 I mean like minor attracted people, like. I mean, and then you turn into maps and it's almost like, what are you talking about? Pedophiles? Right. Is that what you're talking about? You know what I mean? And people get angry because you're trying, it, it feels like you're being tricked almost, right? Here's what the, this was, yeah. this was the article that I pulled this up. The original one was um, Colorado board reverses controversial change to sex offender label at urging of governor Jared Polis and his appointee in November, the state uh, sex offender management board voted to replace sex offenders with adults who commit sex sexual offenses. So maybe they're just like me and they don't like more syllables, but 
Who knows? Uh, then the board opened that decision uh, up to a public comment, and that's where things went off track. Under pressure from the from the governor and the state's public safety director, Colorado Sex Offender Management Board has reversed its controversial controversial rather November decision to scrap the term sex offenders in its own guiding principles in favor of adults who commit sexual offenses. Uh, so, I mean, and they said they tabled it, but they're probably not going to turn it over anytime soon. And, you know, the the outcry from this was a, a lot of people, and this was, um, you know, <laughs> one of the sexual assault survivors said the coddling from some of the uh, offender-affiliated representatives was repugnant, meaning that this was a... Say bit, again. The, the coddling of... This what? was a... Uh, Colorado sex, sexual assault survivor and motivational speaker. The coddling from some of the offender affiliated representatives oh, was repugnant. Got it. Okay. So, um, I mean, I guess the point here is, is that they are, they're changing the language and you know, the stigma is there. I don't even think the stigma goes away just because you change the language. Like you, you hear words that are just, you know, more, I, you know, so, can both things be true? Can like maybe that's why I say I'm of two minds about this. Like no, no, it doesn't decrease the stigma at all. If anything, it breeds resentment because, like you're saying, it people feel like they're being tricked or like yeah. or like it's being minimized somehow. Right. Uh, so in that sense, no. And as far as like broad view, doesn't do much to to impact stigma. Might even enhance it. But for the client that's actively grappling with the worst decision they've ever made, presumably. And, you know, our, our efforts at helping them like who they are today and compare and contrast that with who they were then. So as to not get bogged down by shame, even when they're living right today, I I think that that could be a useful way to think about things for themselves as a tool to, again, grapple with the circumstances around their offense. Right. Don't disagree with that, but that's more for a therapeutic conversation yeah, right. than, than we're going to change the language and magically everything's going to yes. be different. Because on this was, um, this was a quote, and this was from, uh, you know, this was on December 16th, the day before the board's reversal vote. Democratic Governor Jared Polis sent a letter to Kimberly Klein, the chair of SOMB. We must be wary not to normalize violent acts of sexual aggression or even give the appearance of normalizing such unacceptable behavior, he wrote. I hope that the board will reevaluate its previous decision to allow for additional discussions with the wider community, including carefully examining potential trauma victims and ensuring that a clear message continues to be sent to the general public that non-consensual sexual aggression is not acceptable or tolerated in Colorado. So when you say minor attracted people, right, which is a term that we've heard and, and, and everything, you know, I think, you know, somebody who look at this and says, wait, are you, are you talking about pedophiles? Is that what you're talking about? And they have, you know, uh, for whatever reason, a really strong negative opinion about that population. Like that's what I'm saying. You're, mm-hmm. you would, like you said there, it's going to breed resentment because now you're trying to take something and turn it into something else. And it's almost going to drive it even more. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm two, <laughs> two things. Use less syllables. Right. <laughs> Brevity is, is the, the, the idea, but also 
we, I think, need to do better about educating people in general, okay? And like I said to clients, I don't know, you, you can't make a case for this to the general public. It's There's no way right. to accomplish this. I just don't know how you accomplish this. People don't even want to hear it, dude. But you can change individual hearts and minds in your life. And yeah. people getting to know you as far as the changes that you're making, um, and then they learn, oh, wait, you have a sex offense on your record? And... You know, and it says, oh, I don't think of you that way. Okay, now I have changed the stigma because you're no longer thinking of this because you value me as a person and the characteristics. Remember, they said it. I didn't. This is about attitudes about characteristics. Well, if my attitude about this characteristics, about this individual who I got to know is that he's a good person and, you know, he's a law-abiding citizen, so on and so forth. And then I later learn that he has a sex offense on his record. Okay, well, I get to now decide how I'm going to define this person. We hear that frequently from our clients that yeah. they've had that experience. Right. And and unfortunately, for our clients, one of the things I say is, look, you've made a decision that that unfortunately puts you in this place that people get to have opinions about you. And we can't really do a whole lot to change mass opinions. But individuals' opinions, you can make a lot of work on that. And And really... Um, overall, I don't know, do the mass opinions about anything really matter? You know, like about this, I mean, if, if people in my life, important people in my life, my great PO, my loved ones, my, uh, boss, those are the people who matter. They need, I need to have, I need to not have a stigma around them. Like some stranger in Alabama, what do I care? They think about me. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a healthy way of looking at it. Yeah. I just say. Try not to kick the. I, I don't know the stigma stuff. I think there's some value in stigma, and rather than rather than uh, running away it's a from fair it, fair point, man. I, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we don't start getting away from serial killer. I don't know what you'd turn that into. <laughs> if any of the listeners have any ideas, we want to hear what. Uh, yeah, we want you to politically correct up uh, serial killer. Nobody for us. wants to destigmatize that. They like it. They're like, <laughs> yeah, that should be stigmatized. Yeah. I agree. Like, you know, yeah. there's no. So anyway, well, should that that about do it for this? Yeah, yeah that's cool. A couple of cool. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we solved anything, but hey, yeah. at least yeah. were we, fun we to brought talk the about. news to you, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Okay. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Okay. We'll see you guys next time. And that about does it for this episode of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. If you like what you hear. Ask the five-star rating to help you practice a new method for the Heimlich Maneuver. But when he ducks his head forward, wrap your arm around his neck, grab your choking arm with the other hand, push your hips forward, and pull up on the five-star rating's head until he nods off. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please help us grow by sharing with a friend and hit that subscribe button. We'd like to stay in chat longer, but we're lying. Good night.